Welcome to the 38th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about the relative advantages and disadvantages of using containers, scripted installs, or golden images to build systems. We're going to use the phrase containers to mean immutable infrastructure, even though the Venn diagram of the two isn't a perfect overlap, but for our purposes and for the purposes of discussion, it makes it a little bit easier. So in the before time, in the beginning, servers and workstations and everything else were hand-installed special snowflakes. You walked around to the machine in the data center or in the lab or in the user's office and you put a, a disk in a drive and you installed onto there the... There was a time in my life where I never went anywhere without my box of Slackware disks. That dates you a little bit. <laughs> so, this was a very Eventually, fragile... Eventually, I ran out of room to keep all those uh, flop, one and a half flop, three and a half floppy disks. Yeah, I, I have memories of going machine to machine when I was doing desktop support work for university in the late 90s with either floppy disks or boxes of CDs, depending on the vintage of the machine I was working with. And hand installing the OS and then hand installing applications and then hand configuring all of the pieces and having these long checklists to try to keep up with, you know, what I had done, what I hadn't done for all the various machines I was working on. Did Th this you was a very all the steps. Did you get that one knob? Are the printers configured correctly? Are the network settings applied correctly? Anyway, um, this was a very fragile time. And for a lot of folks, this was the way things were. Most servers were considered big iron servers, and you installed one of them. Maybe you installed two of them. And no, they... you called your IBM guy, and he brought the server, plugged it in, and installed it for you. Well, that You're lucky too. if you left the root password. But even when it got into the point where lowly system administrators and organizations were installing their own hosts, they were generally done on a one-to-one -one basis. You brought one machine up, you installed that one machine as it was you walked away into the next machine and each machine was a little bit different and the patch level was a little bit different depending on when it was installed and the configuration of the application was a little and you had you you had notes and generally one person was able to support 15 20 maybe 30 servers and that was considered a lot because you had to keep the state in your head of all of the different pieces of all of this and of course being who we are this isn't good enough so Lots Back of people in the day, spent... that was a big infrastructure. Oh, it was. But a, a lot of people said, this isn't, this isn't okay. We're, we're smarter than this. We have all kinds of utilities. We have all kinds of programming languages. We're systems programmers, damn it. We can, we can make this better. So they started leveraging the BootP and DHCP, DHCP protocols to start building the ability to boot off of a network instance, load your installer from there, and then script the install. So... Um, Sun had um, Jumpstart, Red Hat had Kickstart. There were a couple of others that I don't remember as well. I think Dell had one, and or Deck had one rather, not Dell. Um, Apple had a, a netboot environment that you could boot off of and then launch an installer from. And these were very powerful because it gave you a lot more control of having a repeatable, scriptable install that didn't require you to have the most up-to-date version of the disk in your pocket or in your CD wallet. I really enjoyed Kickstart 
because it was easy to boot the machine, get it installed, and get it updated. So once the install was complete, it didn't matter where the install started or what the state of the machine was in the beginning. It was installed and at the latest revision of the software when it was done. And one and of it was the caveats, all the same process. One of the caveats of this was you had to maintain a local repository of all of the packages you were going to install, and you had to keep it up to date, and it had to be fast, so you could do network installs of machines. But once you had that, it allowed you to say, no, I, I know which version of Apache we've, we've deployed to the machine. I know which versions of the libraries we need to get our image processing program loaded and running. And I have them all locally, so if the upstream maintainer has released a new version, I still have the version that I need for my application to run. And there was no worrying about, oh, did it, did, did it disappear from the network, or is the network timing out so I can't install a new machine? Did the vendor upgrade the software package and remove the old ones? Which happens far more frequently than I ever care Today, to think about. Yes. But, so this was, this was a huge benefit. It was a huge boon to everything that people did. But like a lot of things, it left room for improvement. And especially on the um, the cluster lab side of things and the Windows Server side of things, a lot of people got into the habit of building what were called golden images, which was doing a single install. So, so instead of doing a network-delivered scripted install, you did, a, you did a single install to a hard drive, and then you got it as far along the path as you could for all the common uses for it, and then you baked what was called a golden image, which you then deployed and then changed all the, the, the final pieces at the end that needed to be different about which services were running, what the host name was, what the IP address was. And that also had a, a fairly large following. I remember doing network boots of hundreds of Macintosh machines to, to deploy images out to them so we'd have consistent base application loads for all of the things and then having to go through and key out serial numbers for applications and other other interesting things. But it was a powerful set of tooling that also had its place. Um, it had different clunky problems. Images of whole OSs are really big. They're hard to maintain. For old school servers, that starts to require a lot of s storage. And it's something I refer to as the uh, shiny foil ball syndrome. Um, everybody needs an image. They're pretty big and they're shiny and you use them and then you create a new one and then you create a new one and then you create a new one. And before you know it, you're just kind of swimming in shiny foil balls and and your infrastructure falls apart because of the storage requirements and the, the sheer magnitude of maintaining them all. Yeah, it's, it's a quick win for the short term that is building technical debt faster than any team can possibly dig out of. So because everything old is new again, there's there's another way to look at the sh the shiny golden image that is actually modern and reasonably usable and a lot of people call this docker or containers or server or immutable infrastructure and Even the AMIs for EC2 are image based but useful and the idea is you build the smallest image you possibly can ideally at the size of a single application or smaller if, you, if it's a microservice and you have different pieces of the application broken up into the smallest atomic parts you can. And then when you need to bring up a new version or a new thing, you're deploying 10, 15, 100 megabytes of something and not 15 gigabytes as a, as a single image. It's sort of really the combination of 
of the two sides of the world uh, where you install your OS with an image, but you still have the scripted step that comes afterwards and installs the extra packages you need, installs your application, does the bits that make that install unique, and is your management layer. Immutable infrastructure or containers give you another layer of protection, though, against oddity in that change is expected at the image at imaging time rather than at runtime. So with a scripted install or a network install, the idea is you you deploy a host or an instance and then you run Puppet on it and you keep it up to date going forward. You, the, the idea is this thing is going to live for a period of time. You have some continuous integration system and that keeps your fleet of virtual machines updated. Exactly. But with the container version, you don't update the thing that's running. You build a new one. Your Your CI pipeline builds a new thing. You deploy the new thing and you get rid of the old thing and you just keep on cycling out the old pieces. And there's some really interesting ramifications of this. Um, Netflix has built a SSH encryption token service on immutable infrastructure. So they know that, A, you can't hack into it and change things because the disks are basically read-only. It's immutable. It doesn't let you do changes without redeploying the image. And it gives them the ability to easily and securely give their developers access to hosts without having to send keys out to all kinds of places and do crazy stuff. It's a, it's a fairly interesting project, and you should definitely check it out if you're not familiar with it. It's it's interesting to me that we've sort of always played with the same concepts for 20 years now of imaging versus a scripted programmatic install. And it's it's interesting to me how the pendulum has swung back and forth and found many different positions that it sort of hung out in. I've not spent a lot of time maintaining uh, large Windows install bases. I've not spent a lot of time doing large install bases of Macs. And I never really appreciated, I never really liked the whole image-based installation at all. I There were hardware issues. Would the same image work on a different set of hardware or do I have to bake yet another image? How do I identify and track the different kinds of images that I need? How do I keep folks from installing a really old image and running on it forever and never upgrading? People would never do that. I know. Um, How do I deploy the, the bits that uniquely identify that machine so I can match that machine with what's in my uh, CMDB so I can appropriately manage that machine. And that, that never really worked for me. I never really jived. And I spent more than 10 years maintaining uh, a fleet of uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux and CentOS machines with Kickstart and some uh, infrastructure to dynamically generate Kickstarts and Pixie. On the other side of the coin, I managed, I managed several hundred Macs along with a, a very small team of of other administrators in, in lab environments. So it was, it was very cookie cutter. There, was, there wasn't a lot of differentiation between the machines. But we did almost entirely images because one of the unique pieces of the Apple ecosystem was the same OS install had the drivers for all of Apple's current hardware. So as long as you were using the most current OS, you generally could run it on anything. It would generally work, and there's a couple of asterisks there, of course. But it, it worked well enough that you didn't kill yourself immediately. About two years into that, 
environment, we started carrying that debt and realizing why it wasn't a good idea. And at year four, when I was, I began to transition to a new role, they were starting to look at, because Puppet had just become a kind of a mainstream thing. And Google had done a talk at one of the Mac administrators conferences about using Puppet to manage OS 10 because it was a fully supported operating system on Puppet at that point. And it was like, hang on, we, we could do this better. We could do this so much better. So that had started to turn, but we ran four or five years on just images and it was clunky, but it worked. I think we maintained six or seven master images depending on which application loadout it went out to, if it was going out to a design professor or if it was going out to the the printing lab so the students could do whatever it was. So it was it wasn't awful, but it was still interesting. It worked. Yeah. And it works well in in controlled situations uh, where you have a lot of control over your hardware base and what your fleet is going to be. Where I was, I had basically no control over the hardware people bought, when they were deploying things, in which environment. So I ended up literally carrying this system forward that was based around you load up the Red Hat Enterprise Linux installer and give it enough information and it figures out your machine and installs everything on it. And I had that... I had it to the point where it was actually faster than some of the image-based uh, server installs that people were uh, were experimenting with as well. But of course, the install tree compressed is a lot smaller than a multi-gigabyte image uh, for a hard drive as well. Yeah, and the scripted install, if you have the tool chain, is far more flexible and far more adaptable to incoming requests for stuff to say we need to make sure that all the printers on the network are on this class of machine or there's been a crazy security issue we need to get a new version of OpenSSH deployed everywhere or whatever it is if you're, if you're doing that if you're never working, happens never if you're working in a golden image environment that is a nightmare and you lose almost immediately or you're in the position where you deploy an image and then you run updates on the image and you hope that it doesn't drift too far and you're, then you're using images and Puppet and that gets kind of bad. One of my arguments was that we were we were fairly restricted on how much network storage space we had. And of course, multi-gigabyte images for each lab or each professor's uh, uh, workstation or each class of server end up uh, taking up really a large amount of space. So I would look at people and I would say, who's funding the space requirements, the underlying architecture to serve and store all these images? Crickets. Yeah, it was always crickets. But on the flip side, once again, one of the downsides of doing scripted installs is now you have to maintain packages. And if you're maintaining packages for a single OS, that's not horrible. But the moment somebody says, okay, well, we need to have Solaris and we need Red Hat and we need Ubuntu. And you're now building three different sets of packages for everything you do. That also becomes a nightmare of its own. And to me, I've never gotten out of that problem, whether I'm doing Docker images or, or whatever. There's always been extra packages I needed to distribute. Fair enough. 
One of the other new shiny things that's coming down the pipeline that kind of fits into the immutable or the, it's, it's not even containers at this point because it's the serverless stuff that Amazon kind of introduced with Lambda. Can you talk a little bit more about that, Jack? Oh, barely, but um, I haven't used much of AWS Lambda, but I've heard uh, really some cool things about it. And I've done some other uh, websites and other simple infrastructure on a serverless-based model where you're now to the point that your cloud provider provides you with so much infrastructure, you don't actually need to run a fleet of machines. You can actually deploy a website on S3 and have it hosted and SSL secured without running a single server. Um, included in the show notes is a uh, program uh, that manages uh, Flask and other Python uh, WSG web apps in AWS Lambda. So you can deploy your your web app onto S3 and Lambda, and when it receives an incoming request, runs the web app and serves it. There's no underlying infrastructure that you have to maintain for that. And that gets really pretty powerful, especially if you're doing something small that easily fits in the free tier. And yeah, suddenly you have a a, a really interactive website that costs really next to nothing to run. One of the interesting things about Lambda is they bill you for the micro or the, the milliseconds that the thing runs for, and they trade time for memory. So if something needs more memory, it's just like something that needs less less memory that ran for longer. So as long as you keep yourself aware of the various restrictions or the, the costing model of Lambda, it can be very powerful to replace lots of other things. At Monodorama this year, there was a talk about basically replacing Logstash in an Elk pipeline with Lambda. Because if your environment's already in AWS, you're not paying the transit costs for a lot of things. And if you're taking in batches of messages and processing them, that's the perfect thing for a small script to spin up and do. And they worked out that it was actually cheaper for them to run it in Lambda, even though they're doing a constant stream of high-volume messaging, that it was cheaper to run it in Lambda than it was to spin up instances and run Logstash on it. So, yeah, that was pretty cool. Lambda fits in a lot of places that a lot of people don't think it does. And I did misspeak earlier slightly. The Netflix SSH token service is a Lambda service, not a container service. Um and I put a link to, link of it in the show notes for people to look at. It's called Bless, the Bastion Lambda Ephemeral SSH Service, and it's an interesting way to handle that part of the SSH security chain. But yeah, the whole security aspect is what has has caused me to drift back and forth on a on a lot of these techniques, and it's why I generally wanted to deploy packages and scripts rather than an image of things. Um, and as everybody knows, well, containers are nothing but small images. And it's interesting to to travel through time and realize that a few years ago, once you installed something, it stayed that way forever. And today, in a, a modern environment, you're literally building that install image multiple times a day, multiple times an hour, and you shove a completely new image uh, uh, through your deployment pipeline. And that really makes all the difference. 
if you're going to use an image-based deployment scenario, are you going to actively maintain it? Uh, AMIs on EC2, they're image-based, but they're usually very minimalistic images, and the Ubuntu folks, the CentOS folks, uh, maintained the AMIs very regularly. Um, Even strange and obscure OSs have people dedicated to maintaining those images regularly so that you can have an up-to-date image to deploy on top of. And that's what makes uh, Docker and that ecosystem so interesting is as long as you continually integrate and iterate on your platform, you're continually rebuilding your images, your images are then, not only do they have your latest app, but theoretically they have the latest uh, dependencies, so you're always pushing the latest SSL version. Yes, please make sure that as you're building your Docker continuous integration pipeline that you actually pull down new version of, of, of tags and images and stuff and rather than just relying on whatever's cached because that is a world of pain coming at you if you don't realize that you're using a cache version of your base image rather than the current version. Yeah, and now it's nine months yeah. old and you have an old version of OpenSSL or something else and you've just made the front page of the paper because you're an idiot. Well, not an idiot, but you haven't been paying attention. The whole issue to me is a social problem around, are you going to actively maintain your fleet? And at this point in my career, I've been with multiple different clients and people install their AWS infrastructure, their Colo infrastructure, um, whoever their hosting provider is, and they expect... Ubuntu Precise to be around forever and and surely it will never change. And I'm always very surprised that the the university I used to work at and where I was the Linux architect for that university um, and really was quite pointed about making sure machines were kept up to date. That wasn't a a modern web shop like uh, uh, most of us are involved in today, I guess. Um, but they had better practices than a lot of people I've worked with since then. They were very forward-looking in, in many of those ways, especially because they had been bitten so many times by the fact that all of their machines ran on the public internet. There was no, there was no hiding behind a NAT. There was no hiding behind a firewall. It was all the machines in the in the lab, in the office, in the server room were on the public internet. And you had to pay attention and secure your box correctly. So a vulnerability in Apache or a vulnerability in a commonly deployed library could be really catastrophic. So they were very intent on, no, we always patch. We always patch continuously. If there are things you need to not update, you can exclude those things. But the rest of the OS marches on. At my last, my, at my, at my last organization before my current employee, I came across a production box that was a Red Hat Advanced Server 3 install. Ooh, good stuff. I remember it, those. It didn't have YUM. Because no. it was way too old for YUM. Um, that, was a, that was a little gem that we came across, or that I came across. The, the rest of the people knew about it, but I, went, I, I was brought you up short. You stubbed your foot against it. and Yeah, that hurt. Yeah, let me know when you find a, a Red Hat AS 2.1 box. I don't think I've ever seen one of those in the wild. <laughs> anyway, that's that's going on aside. 
but yeah, really, if you're building anything, if you if you have the authority to build any infrastructure today, and you expect to have long running instances, a scripted install with configuration management to maintain state is generally considered the most reasonable way to do that. If you're building in the daring new shiny world of microservices and SOA, Docker is the obvious solution for that as well. Just keep in mind the various strengths and weaknesses of the two sides. And if you can find a way to fit yourself into Lambda, that's even better because there's no attack surface. There's no images to maintain. It's just code and it gets spun up when it's needed on demand. So, Brendan, do you remember the days when you used to cheer because the uptime counter on your Linux box wrapped around? Yeah. And oh. we thought we were cool back then? Yeah, now we just remember that that means we haven't patched. Yeah, a buddy of mine, oh, what exactly did he say? He gave me a quote that it rings so true. Uh, a high uptime isn't something to celebrate. It's the amount of time that has elapsed since you've last tested that your boot sequence works. <laughs> oh. For me, the, the scariest thing in my Solaris administrator days was restarting a server. Because you never, you never knew if it would come back up exactly the way it was. Because it often had been two years since the last reboot. And I definitely had a couple cases where... I had to reboot a Solaris machine and you would know that the hard drive had died and it had been running out of RAM for like the last eight, nine months. Oops. Yeah, that, that's that's not so... <laughs> it speaks to the resilience of the OS and it speaks to the resilience of other pieces of it, but that's just not a... That's not a place you ever want to find yourself. Um, test your reboot frequently. This is part of the, the, the Netflix Chaos Monkey stuff and other other testing tools like that that... that programmatically and randomly fail pieces of infrastructure to make sure that things aren't let sit that long. And you don't put all of your eggs in one basket. You, you don't build these gigantic Oracle database servers anymore. Well, most people don't because you can distribute, you can distribute it. You have, now you have the, the challenges of a distributed system, which are in many ways more interesting or more challenging, but it removes the ridiculous single point of failure. And touching on our last episode about repeatability and reproducibility, practice rebuilding your your fleet, your application stack. If you can if you can rebuild your application stack on a whim or because you've practiced via Chaos Monkey or something similar, then if disaster strikes, you have all of that knowledge and understanding, and you know that you can recreate your environment and probably put it somewhere else in this in the same process. And if you're looking to develop uh, DR uh, high availability or any sort of, of business continuity, um, can what's the right word there, Brendan? Continuity. There we go. Um, but that's how you achieve that in our modern world. And make sure that as Jack just mentioned, that while you're testing your installs, you're also testing how you install, say, a database server or something else that has a persistent data store. How do you restore a backup and bring that up in an automated fashion so when there's a, a disaster event or when you need to restore something or, or grow something, you know, how, you know exactly how it works when the OS loads up 
and the packages get installed, and then it starts reading the data source. You, you need to understand that interplay directly, and if it's coming off of a backup, that's fine. If it's replicating off of another site, that's fine. But test it and understand it so when it happens, you're not surprised. And these techniques allow you to easily move between, uh, say, Amazon uh, regions, but they also lead you toward the magical place for, you know, when things get big, where you can run out of multiple regions uh, serving geographically local customers and have a uh, uh, an infrastructure that's scalable and resilient and does the job for you. Also, if you do the job correctly, this allows you to have things in Amazon and things in Google Compute and things in Microsoft Azure and things in your own local data center. And you can mix and match whatever your business needs are at the moment. So you're not locked into a single provider of anything, be it the data center provider that you're hosting stuff in, be it Amazon or Google or Microsoft or what have you. This this allows flexibility and decouples your business from somebody else's, which can be very liberating. And if you can decouple from your hosting provider early in the process, you'll thank yourself because it's definitely a lot harder later in the process. And odd that hosting providers, they they work to make it difficult to do that. Please take the time to rate the show on iTunes. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use, opera- or use at operations.fm on Twitter. That wraps it up for the 38th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. We have been Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. Thanks, and good night.